Newman and the Thomistic tradition, convergences and contribution to development theory. Newman and Thomism, some difficulties. In certain provinces, such as metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and religion, Newman claims that egotism is true modesty. Speaking both egotistically and modestly, then, I have a confession to make. It's no fun when you're reading it with me, yeah? <laughs> I, I, I'll read it anyway, just for the effect. <laughs> I came to know Aristotle and Aquinas before I came to know Newman. And so as someone who loves Aquinas and whose instinctive philosophical framework is a Thomistic one, there are some passages in Newman's writings which I find puzzling and in need of explanation, to say the least. And I'll admit further that if I'm in a particularly bad mood, there are other famous Newman phrases that I find not only overquoted, but quite frankly, annoying. What is this business about man not being a reasoning animal, but a seeing and feeling one? Or logic being a sorry rhetoric for the multitude? What is Newman's problem with universals? And why do the notional and the abstract receive such derision? And in my more desperate moments, when I speculate about alternative universes, I wonder what Newman's essay on development would look like were it not contaminated with the empiricist grammar of ideas and impressions. The good news is, however, that I'm very rarely in a bad mood, <laughs> and I'm even more rarely contemplating alternative universes. Newman, I think, can cause some consternation among Thomists, but it's precisely his own non-Thomistic, non-scholastic context that is responsible for some of his greatest contributions such as his religious apologetic and his reflections on conscience. For this reason, one seminal part of Newman reception in the 20th century has been the attempt to reconcile or show the compatibility and perhaps even complementarity between Newman and Thomism or the scholastic tradition more generally. Significant names in this regard include Eric Shavara, Henry Francis Davis, and more recently, the next speaker at this conference. I could identify five contributions of Newman to development theory, though there are more, which more or less converge with the Thomist tradition. Emphasis should be placed here on more or less. As I read out the six, you might identify the higher and lower degrees of convergence. One, the necessity of the proposition and its subordination to, but necess necessary and adequate expression of its object, or what Newman calls the dogmatic principle. Two, a personalist understanding of revelation. Three, a theory of real but implicit possession. Four, a critique of formal inference or deductive logic in concrete matters. Five, the role of informal inference as a prelude to the definition of dogma. In this paper, I will examine all of these except for the first, for its numbers two, three, four, and five that Thomas development theorists took more time to assimilate. My goal will be to sketch out the extent to which 20th century Thomists, considered on a very, very wide spectrum, concur with, take on, or assume these characteristics of Newman, regardless of whether they appeal explicitly to him or not. In other words, I hope to map out significant, some significant convergences and along the way some divergences as well. I'll consider Newman and his scholastic critics on the one hand and his unapologetic allies on the other. I'll then dwell on some different approaches to justifying the Marian dogmas as a case study for Newman's varying influences on these theologians. I'll be weaving in and out of these various authors and Newman himself. The convergences or appropriations will vary from individual to individual, and so there is a great diversity among those who consider themselves disciples of St. Thomas. Unfortunately, there are no easy generalizations here. Newman's historical approach. Whatever the familiarity and openness to Newman, Thomas' treatments of doctrinal development in the first half of the 20th century are simply very different to Newman's. One key difference to my mind is the extent to which history, or something other than concerted reflection, whether that reflection is dialectical or contemplative, plays a role in eliciting the implicit from the dogma. History for Newman is an incredibly messy process. It's precisely this messiness to which most scholastic presentations of development do not attend. To take a stark and perhaps an overly simplistic example, Garigou Lagrange, for him, 
The dogma of papal infallibility is formally implicit in Thou art Peter. Okay. But he claims that it is formally implicit in the same way that the conclusion Christ died for Solomon is implied in the major premise Christ died for all. It's a part of a whole. Newman would agree that papal infallibility is implicit in Matthew 16, 18, but he would also point to the real explanatory power of practical ecclesial necessity. The argument from expedience also is deployed in the determination of heretical baptism being valid, uh, and it could also be invoked, for example, the church's uh, uh, judgment that oath-taking is morally permissible. Uh, and in both of those instances, heretical baptism and oath-taking, the vast majority of church fathers were against it. The consensus was heretical baptism is invalid. And the consensus was when Matthew 5, when Jesus says, take no oaths, he meant take no oaths. Yeah. The scholastic critiques of Newman. One of the first points of scholastic friction Newman experienced was at the hands of another Anglican convert to Catholicism and later Jesuit Thomas Morton Harper, known for his works on metaphysics. Harper didn't take well to Newman's grammar of assent, and in particular, Newman's discussion of informal inference. Quote, either my inference is formally valid or it is not, he wrote in the month. If it be formally valid, it is ipso facto molded by logical law. If it is not, it is no inference at all, Unquote. Almost 50 years later, the Belgian Dominican Marcelinus Maria Toyets published his work on development, L'Evolution du Dogme, in which he argued that strict theological conclusions and only such conclusions are definable. While doing so, he criticized Newman's organic approach to development precisely because it is not purely dialectical, and also attacked the idea that intuition could play any role in doctrinal development. Three years after Toyets' book, the Swiss Dominican, here at the Angelicum, Reginald Maria Schultes, published his lectures as Introductio in Historiam Dogmatum. In that work, Schultes, like his colleague Garigou Lagrange, defends the position over against Marinsola that only that which is formally implicit can be defined a dogma. In doing so, he summarizes Newman's thought on doctrinal development in two paragraphs acknowledges its novelty and its utility, but concludes that due to certain defects regarding the noetic aspect of doctrine, Newman's theory suffers significantly in multis deficiat. As a staunch anti-modernist, Schultes emphasizes rational argument as the primary factor of doctrinal development. One of his theses reads, revealed doctrines and defined dogmas existed implicitly neither primarily nor principally in the life and activity of the faithful. Schultes also attacks certain statements by Maurice Blondel as incorrect, such as that dogmas are justifiable neither by historical science alone nor even by a dialectic that is ingeniously deployed to the texts. In short, Schultes is attacking Blondel's theory of implicit knowledge or possession contained in action. Writing already 20 years later in 1940, the Jesuit Charles Boyer echoes a strong logicist theory like that of Touillet's. The development of a truth, he writes, can only follow a logic, and this path, at least at the point of arrival, must be perceptible. He goes further. Appealing to life, and in a way to the irrational, coagnos, seems to us to be a concession to certain contemporary philosophies. Other scholastics, however, such as Marin Sola, would have a much more sympathetic reading of Newman. But before we turn to him, let us proceed first to Congar and de Lubac. These are the unapologetic allies of Newman. Newman's fuller reception of Congar and de Lubac, themes and revelation. De Lubac, I think, summarizes the tension well between the logicists on the one hand and newer Newman-inspired theories of those such as Léonce de Grandmaison, based as they are on Newman. One group of theologians speak of expediency, analogies, considerations proper to incline the mind, while others speak in its regard of rigorous reasoning and strict scientific, fully convincing deductions. It seems to me that one of the great fault lines of division, in addition to the role of history, is whether or not one accepts a theory of implicit possession of some reality that is contained not only in an antecedent explicit conceptual judgment, such as 
thou art Peter for papal supremacy, or the father and I are one for the homoousion, but also in, for example, an action such as worship. Accordingly, such unconscious or confused knowledge embedded in some activity, when aroused, can come to the surface and express itself with more defined concepts. It is precisely this kind of implicit knowledge that is the hallmark of Newman's theory of development, expressed in his 15th university sermon in these famous words. The absence or partial absence or incompleteness of dogmatic statements is no proof of the absence of impressions or implicit judgments in the mind of the church. Even centuries might pass without the formal expression of a truth which had been all along the secret life of millions of faithful souls. Newman's impressions and implicit judgments greatly influenced Maurice Blondel, both directly and indirectly. Blondel formulated his theory of the implicit in his famous essay on history and dogma published in 1904. There he wrote his famous line about tradition that makes something pass from the implicitly lived to the explicitly known. This phrase, d'implicit vécu à l'explicit connu, is the arresting phrase that would influence a generation of development theorists like de Lubac and Congar. Newman and Blondel allowed theologians like Congar and de Lubac to explain the genesis of conceptual judgments without having to depend too heavily on a direct connection to prior judgments or texts, important as those explicit texts are. Logicists such as Tuyers, Schultes, and Boyer, on the other hand, found this theory problematic. But if Blondel's theory of the implicit is wrong, the figure to whom he is partially indebted for it is also wrong. As Schultes alleges, Newman's theory in multis deficiat. Newman's theory of the implicit is, in turn, based on his understanding of revelation that involves an idea which is impressed on the mind by supernatural facts. The Christian idea for Newman is not solely a collation of judgments, not solely, it is a collation of judgments, but not solely a collation of judgments, but more of a principle that seizes, captures, and takes possession of people's minds and then stirs them to action. The cognitive judgments contained therein are but a part of the idea. Now we come back to the question leveled in the last, uh, in the last talk about the implicit knowledge of the apostles. Newman's psychology of implicit possession accounts for why Newman departs from a classical tradition on the question of apostolic knowledge. More classical theorists, such as Sola, held that the apostles were granted explicit knowledge of divine revelation by an infused light, such that before there was any dogmatic progress, there was first a regress. Newman, on the other hand, is happy to claim that the knowledge that the apostles had of the deposit of faith was complete but latent and implicit. Newman would have agreed with Marinsola when he was still an Anglican, holding to a theory of the Disciplina Arcani, that's the discipline of the secret whereby uh, developments, what we call developments, were actually not true developments, but they were actually held from the beginning, but the silence of the first few centuries are accounted for by a discipline of the secret whereby, for reasons of persecution or for reasons of prudence or reserve or for baptismal caution, they didn't preach it, but they preached it secretly in, in, in baptismal rituals, yeah? but you wouldn't have uh, proclaimed it from the rooftops. <clears throat> Newman, however, saw the problem such a theory posed, and with his insight into development, substituted for the theory of the Disciplina Arcani, a theory about implicit knowledge. In an apostle's mind, Newman writes, great part of his knowledge is from the nature of the case latent or implicit. In a letter, Newman imagines a situation in which St. Paul is asked about the Immaculate Conception. Newman's answer is, I think he would have answered in the affirmative. If he never was asked the question, I should say he had in his mind the decision of 1854, in confusio or implicite. Similarly, Justin and Irenaeus might not have had a clear idea about purgatory or original sin, but they had, according to Newman, an intense feeling of sin and the responsibilities that come with grace. This intense feeling is the result of what Newman calls an impression on the imagination that later becomes a system or creed in the reason. In contrast to Marinsola, then, Congar and de Lubac are in accord with Newman. Revelation was indeed complete with the death of the last apostles, 
who were gifted with an infused knowledge, but that perfection, completeness, or integrity involved an implicit possession of truths whose explicitation would have to be elicited throughout the course of history. It is worth pointing out that other Thomists agree. My, my reading, uh, it might differ a little bit from Father Mancini's, I think Charles Journet would actually um, be okay with some kind of implicit knowledge. Uh, I know for a fact Garigou Lagrange concedes that uh, an explicit preaching of the assumption is not necessary to hold it. So he too seems to say that, now whether or not there's a distinction between uh, an explicit preaching and an explicit knowledge. It's possible that the apostles knew explicitly about the dogma of the Assumption or the Immaculate Conception and just decided not to preach it. Uh, I think, but I, I, my understanding of Journey is that even that is not, they don't even have to know it, uh, let alone preach it. Number two, revelation as personal and experiential. Another key and influential aspect of Newman's understanding of Revelation is its deeply personal and experiential character. It's experiential and personal in the sense that behind the Christian idea that was impressed on the minds of the earliest Christians is the person of Jesus Christ, who impressed it upon them. Newman writes, Revelation meets us with simple and distinct facts and actions, not with painful induction from existing phenomena, not with generalized laws or metaphysical conjectures, but with Jesus and the resurrection. For Newman, Christ and his saving work come first, not only for the creed, but also before the charismatic texts of scripture from whence so much theology comes. Congar and de Lubac fundamentally agree that what was given to the apostles as the deposit of faith was first and foremost a personal event, or as Newman would say, a supernatural fact. De Lubac's phrase is tout de dogme, or the whole of dogma, which is the person of Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that all other doctrinal enunciations are implicit. Trinity, incarnation, baptism, grace, etc. Congar refers to the totality of Revelation as le fait du Christ. Christ is a fact, something concrete, an event. And crucially, it is delivered to us, as Congar says, en vrac, loosely and in bulk. And the church goes about her business unpacking it. And when she does, what was loose, undetermined, vague, and confused becomes more definite and precise. Now that we have examined Congar and de Lubac's fundamental agreement on Newman's understanding of Revelation, in contrast to some of Newman's stronger critics, let us look at some of the telling but different approaches to Marian dogmas. First of all, consider Sola, Francisco Sola. While Sola does not deny that pious devotion of the faithful contributed to the ultimate definition of the Immaculate Conception by Pius IX, Marinsola insists, rightly I think, on the role played by theological reasoning. He does so, however, in a way that even some of his Thomist peers found problematic. Marinsola, for example, criticizes those who would either deny that the Immaculate Conception is implicit in Mary's maternity, or who would admit that it is implicit but can only be elicited from the divine maternity in a way that is only probable. For Sola, the Immaculate Conception can be deduced with a rigorous theological and conclusive argumentation that yields certainty. In this, he agrees completely with his confrère Touillet, whose own deduction, I think, is inferior to Sola's, and his deduction is in the footnote, but you can look at that on your own time. Sola's argumentation runs thus. One. It is necessary to attribute to Mary as worthy mother of God all grace and holiness and complete exemption from sin in a way that comports with the honor due to her son, that is, in a way that safeguards Mary's redemption by Jesus Christ. Minor premise from reason. Now the exemption of all original fault, provided that Mary contracted a real proximate and personal debitum, is compatible with a true and rigorous preservative redemption affected by Jesus Christ. So to restate it more, uh, simply, major. Mary has to be as holy and as full of grace as possible in a way that is compatible with Christ's universal redemption. The minor, preservation from original sin, understood in the right way, is so compatible. Therefore, this I think is a fantastic argument, but other theologians observe that, despite its profundity, Varinsola claims too much for it. 
Thomists, as different from each other as both Congar and Schultes, disagree that the Immaculate Conception can be deduced from Mary's divine maternity, but neither elaborate on their misgivings. The problem, as I see it, is with the first premise from Revelation, which, strictly speaking, is disputable. Marinsola spends a lot of time showing the history of the second premise, showing how both uh, the Franciscans, or Scotus, and Thomas together, through their argumentation, uh, chiseled out and hammered out the second premise. But it's actually the first premise that, I, that is actually, in a sense, deniable, strictly speaking. Mary doesn't have to be as holy as possible. She can be very, very holy, or very, 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 very holy. Now, it's at this point that Newman's critique of logic, or what he calls formal influence, or for formal inference in the grammar of assent becomes relevant. Newman's critique of formal inference. According to Newman, formal inference is a verbal reasoning, as opposed to mental, whose scientific form we call logic. When an analysis of propositions is put into form, it becomes an Aristotelic syllogism. When it comes to concrete questions, formal inference only yields probabilities for Newman. First, because they cannot reach the particular, and second, because its premises are assumed and hence in need of further justification. Formal inference cannot reach the particular because, as Newman writes, abstract can only conduct to abstract, but we have need to attain by our reasoning to what is concrete. Concrete questions, such as, will there be a European war, cannot be answered with an apodictic certainty based on major premise. All audacious defiances of Turkey on the part of Greece must end in a European war. Minor. These present acts of Greece are such. Ergo. Now, if there ever were a concrete or singular question, whether or not God granted Mary an immunity from original sin is surely one. This is not the time for me to, uh, I'm not going to evaluate or assess Newman's critique of formal inference. That can be done at a, another stage. I'm just giving you his critique. Formal inference's second limitation consists in the difficulty of establishing premises that can be deployed in concrete situations. We try to establish premises either with previously established conclusions based on other sets of premises, or we move back to undeniable premises and first principles, which, according to Newman, are self-evident by their respective advocates because they are evident in no other way. Newman's critique rests on this insight. Every reasoning process in the concrete is accompanied by a host of assumptions, subtle ones, that touch on so many aspects of thought which are traceable to the sentiments of the age, country, religion, social habits, and ideas of the particular inquirers of or disputants. In short, Newman has nothing against logic per se, but he believes that people reason better than they argue. Let us recall Marinsola's first premise, briefly, that Mary has to be wholly as theologically possible. For Marinsola, this premise is beyond doubt and discussion. It is simply what he calls the traditional interpretation of the Gospel's gratia plena. But Newman would point out that this premise is infused with innumerable presuppositions and assumptions. It assumes, for example, that gratia plena means that Mary has to be maximally graced in a way that is compatible with Christ's universal redemption. But the Greek kariketomeni can mean a variety of things. There is a hermeneutical issue here, one which presupposes, for example, a mystical or spiritual reading of scripture which again opens up a host of other assumptions about Catholic scriptural interpretation, not to mention questions about authoritative interpretation and sanction by the magisterium. Such a reading requires a synthetic and typological reading of Genesis 3 and Revelation 12, but also, as Lubach points out, requires a certain level of spiritual insight, devotion, and Christian living. It is worth noting here how Garigou Lagrange establishes his premises for a different but similar argument, namely for that of the assumption. He's writing, if I recall, two years prior to the definition in 48 or 49. Major, the perfect victory of Christ over the devil includes that over sin and that over death. Minor, also from Revelation, which sets him apart from Marinsola. Marinsola can have a theological conclusion whereby the major is from Revelation and the minor is from reason. For Garigou Lagrange and for Schultes, it's important that both the major and the minor are revealed 
and that way you can ensure that it's formally implied uh, in the major. Minor premise, Mary was more closely and indissolubly associated than anyone else with Calvary and with the perfect victory of Christ over the devil. Hence, Mary was closely and indissolubly associated also to the components of this victory, namely over sin and over death. Again, a wonderful and coherent sound argument. The first premise is easily enough established in scripture. But to establish the second, Garigou marshals forward eight pieces of evidence. The Proto-Evangelium, so that's Genesis, uh, uh, between the the serpent and the woman, yeah? The Proto-Evangelium, Isaiah 7, the Grazia Plena from Gabriel, uh, the revelation of St. Elizabeth at the Visitation, coupled with the Magnificat, Simeon's prophecy, Mary at the foot of the cross, Mary as the new Eve, and the Immaculate Conception. So that's eight pieces uh, of evidence. These, he says, provide an inductive argument to establish the revealed status of the second premise. Garigou's work begins to show us the exegetical preparation necessary to establish the premises of a more complex theological syllogism. Even before he articulates the syllogism, he dwells on the meaning of Catholic exegesis, its interpretive rules and practice. Even if one accepts all of this, however, one still has to adjudicate between which spiritual interpretations contribute to an authentic sensus plenior of the text and which ones do not or are erroneous. On what grounds have some interpretations gained traction and others not? Is it simply because magisterial authority sanctions some and not others? And why is this sanction not simply arbitrary? Newman, as ever, brings to light the intangible the intangibles involved in Catholic scripture exegesis by appealing to Christian instinct. That Mary is sinless is attributed by Newman not to Luke 128, but to an instinctive sentiment on the part of Christians. A number of Catholics with that instinct, as Newman says, employ themselves in the contemplation of scripture facts and bring out before their minds in a tangible form the doctrines involved in them and give such a substance and color to the sacred history as to influence their brethren. And their brethren, though superficial themselves, are drawn by their Catholic instinct to accept conclusions which they could not indeed themselves have elicited, but which, when elicited, they feel to be true. The objective criteria by which the tradition can judge one such interpretation to be valid and indeed vital is limited. So think, for example, of the New Eve. The interpretation, yes, it can't contradict the literal sense, It can't contradict the revelation, and yes, it must cohere with the rest of revelation, but these are limited negative norms. What ultimately determines whether a spiritual interpretation has traction is its resonance with the Christian life that is judged by a Catholic sense or instinct that is informed by various experiences and needs, whether mystical, liturgical, devotional, missiological, or even artistic. And Newman even gives an example of a painting in the catacombs of the Sede Sapiense, and he says, there is no more powerful, uh, I think the word is presentation, or more powerful image that brings home to us uh, the power and dignity of Mary than than this image in the catacombs. Thought, according to Newman, is too keen and manifold. Its sources are too remote and hidden. Its path too personal, delicate, and circuitous. Its subject matter too various and intricate to admit of the trammels of any language, of whatever subtlety and whatever compass. Newman concludes that these sentiments, affections, and principles, and prejudices, prejudices in the neutral sense of the term, can only be accounted for by a method of argumentation more delicate, versatile, and elastic than verbal argumentation. We find then, in Marinsola, some degree of ambiguity. On the one hand, he acknowledges that the faithful's devotion to Our Lady slowly chisels out his first premise, namely that Mary has to be maximally graced. Simultaneously, however, he insists over against someone like Reginald Schultes and so many others that the dogma is implicit in the divine maternity in a way that is not probable, but certain according to a rigorous formal logic. Newman's point that I'm highlighting here is not only that the first premise is not strictly speaking necessary, but also that granting the premises in such a syllogism involves a great deal of personal and spiritual perspicacity. It's the illative sense for Newman that, among other functions, enables the person to discover which principles to assume and which ones to eschew. 
what to give more weight to and to what less. It puts someone in touch with those primary elements of thought, which, if formalized into verbal argumentation, become too numerous and subtle to control. When a logical theorist, such as Charles Boyer, writes, we can see quite sufficiently how the Immaculate Conception derives from the Proto-Evangelium, de Luba can only shake his head in disbelief. That is why, in a tone falling between irony and derision, de Lubac turns Boyer's words against himself by alluding to all the intangible considerations that are so important to Newman. Yes, we can see quite sufficiently, provided that we adopt certain Christian value judgments, that we reason according to the analogy of faith, and particularly after the event, when we are guided by the unanimous Christian sentiment, itself canonized by the decision of the infallible magisterium, when we have thereby attained the certitude that none of the objections raised is valid and that no other will ever be presented. We see very efficiently, sufficiently indeed. Newman's critique of formal inference is what propels him forward to offer informal inference as the best and surest way forward in concrete matters. Informal inference, antecedent considerations, and the accumulation of probabilities. To move along here, I'm going to summarize this. One of the key parts of Newman's thought is this idea of antecedent probabilities, which are those probabilities which arise before any evidence is presented. So to take an example, someone is killed. Yeah? There's a murder has taken place, and the question is, who did it? And there are some things that you can consider that happened before the murder. Let's say, let's wonder, okay, did Peter do it? Well, uh, you can wonder, maybe he was a bad bloke. Maybe he had bad friends. Maybe he had a criminal record. Maybe he was not a nice guy. He kept bad company. Um, and maybe he didn't like the person, the victim. Yeah? These are things that increase the probability before you even have considered the evidence. And the evidence would be he had blood on his hands, he had a weapon, he was found in the room, etc. So you have those things before the evidence, which increase the probability that it was Peter who did it, and then you have the other things which actually confirm the expectation that already was elicited by these probabilities. Now, a, part, a key part of why antecedent considerations are so important for Newman is that in concrete matters, the evidence one can provide are but tokens or indications. So just because Peter has a knife in his hand doesn't necessarily mean that he did it. Yeah? But as the anticipations or the expectations increase, the less evidence you need. Yeah? The, as the probabilities increase antecedently, the less evidence you need to confirm those uh, probabilities. If what Newman calls the spontaneous or traditional feeling of Christians towards the Virgin Mary is strong enough, then actually very little evidence is needed to convince them that she was immaculately conceived or assumed into heaven. Proof for Newman is the limit of converging probabilities. So as the evidence stacks up, it points in one direction. So each one individually doesn't prove anything, but as each one points in the same direction, then like an asymptote, it, it's going to hit the line. It might not hit it exactly, but it's in that direction. Now, Marin Sola acknowledges the existence of what he calls raisonnement sans forme, or raisonnement informe, informal reasoning. But by this, he doesn't mean an accumulation of probabilities, but simply a deduction in which one of the premises is suppressed out of spontaneity or mental agility, or what Aristotle might call, or what Aristotelians call an enthymeme. The grand utility of Newmanian informal inference, however, is that you can acquire certitude precisely on the basis of a series of probable evidences. While some areas of inquiry, such as geometry, require a proof that conforms to deductive scientia, other areas, such as ethics or history, require a proof that obliges itself to a different but no less sufficient form of argumentation. Arguments from suitability or fittingness is precisely one such argument that buttresses antecedent probability in dogmatic questions. Classically, arguments ex conveniencia, or from suitability, do not prove doctrines, but provide reasons for why such a doctrine, assented to by faith, is coherent, suitable, fitting, proper, or harmonious. But arguments of suitability are deployed with respect not only to doctrines already revealed, but also to hypotheses that are still open for debate. Given X, Y might not be necessary, but Y is surely fitting. 
Unlike Marinsola, who has no need for such an argument because Mary's immaculate conception is first and foremost already implied in her maternity, Newman's vindication of the immaculate conception, on the other hand, against his former Tractarian colleague, Edward Pusey, rings out with such arguments of suitability. The argument echoes the Scotus dictum, potuit decuit ergo fecit, God was able, it was fitting, therefore he did it. Newman begins by establishing historically the very early and possibly apostolic origins of the New Eve theme. Given that Mary is the New Eve, the Immaculate Conception might not be strictly speaking necessary, <coughs> but it is, not, is it not entirely fitting? I won't summarize Newman's arguments here, but I would draw attention to the language he uses. He asks, for example, if it is really the Blessed Virgin whom scripture represents as clothed, clothed with the sun, etc., what height of glory may we not attribute to her? He asks again, is it any violent inference? And is it rash to say that Mary had even a greater grace? Given that she is bound so closely to the incarnate word through her maternity, Newman asks, is it surprising that she should be immaculately conceived or assumed into heaven? The answer is obviously no, it's not a surprise. And so when the church is confronted with evidence of the assumption in say its universal feast, which has celebrated it since the seventh century, then she is, in Newman's words, not surprised. It only makes sense. Scholasticism's tradition of argumentum ex convenientia converges with Newman's epistemology where it plays a role in eliciting expectations and other lines of theological inquiry. Supporting the role of arguments of suitability is the commission established by Pius IX to prepare the definition of the Immaculate Conception. The commission did not treat the dogma as if it could be formally deduced from prior theological data. They used arguments from suitability or reasons of propriety and traditional interpretations of key scripture passages to support the definition. And one final illustration, Kungar on the Assumption. On the 15th centenary of the Council of Chalcedon, Kungar took the opportunity to address the dogma of the Assumption in his work, Christ, Mary, and the Church. He did so not through dialectic, but by pointing out its coherence with Newmanian notes, even if he wasn't explicit about this strategy. Newman's sixth note is called Conservative Action Upon the Past. It means essentially that a development is legitimate if it subserves, illustrates, and protects those doctrines which have come before it. Kongar argues that all Marian privileges, but in particular the definition of 1950, conserves Chalcedon. Why? Kongar writes, Our Lady is seen in this doctrine of the Assumption as in actual fact the first fruits of redemption and the exemplar and pledge of glorified humanity. She is purely human, and her glorified humanity, a ground of hope that ours will one day be like hers, carries back our understanding to the sacred and glorified humanity of Christ, in the likeness of which hers was victorious over sin and death. The whole point of Chalcedon is to defend the integrity of Christ's human nature, which is the principle of our own sanctity. It is the sanctification and victory of Christ's humanity that is the principle of our own sanctification and victory, whose first creaturely exemplar is Mary. The assumption preserves Chalcedon. In a closely related way, Congar defends not only the assumption, but Catholic Mariology more generally from its Protestant detractors on the grounds of a deficient Christology. Congar is very critical of Luther's soteriology. What kind of a humanist is he anyway? <laughs> because of Luther's diminishment of the Theologia Gloriae, on Congar's reading, salvation is conceived by Luther as solely an opus dei, God redeems us in Christ, and Christ redeemed in us. And then there's this admirable exchange. Where then, Kungar asks, is the role of humanity in all this? For Kungar, Luther is deficient in both theology and in mediation. And it's precisely here where, in Newmanian terms, Luther has violated the second note, continuity in principle, namely the sacramental or mediatory principle and the principle of theology. One could, as already mentioned, include in this Newman's principle of the mystical or spiritual sense of scripture. In short, Congar's defense of the assumption does not appeal to syllogisms, instructive as they might be, 
but amounts to showing that the dogma manifests Newman's notes of concertive action on the past and continuity in principle. And before I conclude, I just want to point out that when we apply Newman's notes, Newman was aware that you don't have to slavishly apply all seven of them to each development, but that he recognized that some notes are more applicable to certain doctrines. By way of conclusion, then, I would say that the reception of Newman by theologians trained and were steeped in Thomism results in a gradual move away from a logicist theory of development, such as Tuyet's or Boyer's. Marin Sola takes a significant step forward away from the logicist position, not only by reading Newman more sympathetically, but also by doing so, affirming without reservation the role that affectivity and connatural knowledge play in doctrinal development. In trying to prove the homogeneative doctrine, however, Marin Sola's methodology is thoroughly logicist or dialectical in that he insists on certitude from deduction rather than a certitude based on a series of probabilities. In this respect, many of his Thomist colleagues disagree. By the time we get to Dulubach and Congar, Newman's most controversial teachings are received without demur. They take for granted that the church can possess something implicitly in a variety of ways, including the activity and praxis of the faithful. Congar and Dulubach each express two similar conclusions. First, that the church is ultimately not beholden to or bound by the argumentation of theologians and that despite even the value of a Newmanian accumulation of probabilities, the church's supernatural capacity to judge is the ultimate and only adequate criteria for judging a hypothetic development whose historical testimony in its favor is ambiguous. And secondly, both express their conviction that the church does not define what it thinks to be a theological conclusion. Rather, the church defines what it believes to be in the deposit of faith. What sets Marinsola apart from logicists like Tuyets and Boye is that the Spaniard is not trying to explain by logical deduction how particular doctrines have developed in history, nor does he insist on such a proof as a license for magisterial definition. He is simply trying to show the homogeneity of the developed doctrine with the deposit of revelation in the best way he knows how, and in the most rigorous way he can. Kungar sees in Marinsola's approach, however, not so much an explanation for every instance of dogmatic development, but a rigorous account of and model for theological development. He points out that Marinsola's exposition of dialectic is a sophisticated one that takes into account the dangers of equivocation. This coheres well with Kungar's idea that the main task of speculative, theolog the speculative theological endeavor is not the deduction of new conclusions, but a rational construction of the Christian faith, which for Kongar involves a kind of alternate scientia. In this process of faith-seeking understanding, however, one begins with the conclusion and works backwards towards its principles. Putting it into syllogistic form is simply the way of laying hold of higher causes in the divine economy. Many of Marinsola's syllogisms are exemplary in this regard and his analysis of the metaphysically inclusive versus the physical syllogism helps the theologian appreciate the depth but also the limits of the various relationships he or she is able to identify. He and some of his confrères offer us not only a logical but also a metaphysical rigor that seems so foreign to contemporary theological habits. Let us call to mind the controversies of our day, the ones in which we see ecclesial polarization in broad daylight and imagine how a heavy dose of rigorous argumentation and a capacity to see the organic connections between various doctrines could change the tenor and substance of our theological conversations. It might seem that this entire discussion by Thomists on doctrinal development seems irrelevant today. Few theologians today are pining for the Pope or a council to define rigorously argued theological conclusions. Instead, the theological controversies that envelop the church today have to do with potential changes to the church's inherited practices and disciplines which have novel implications or knock-on effects for how we interpret certain doctrines. In this respect, Newman's approach to doctrinal development seems more contemporary in that for him, what is developing is an idea that not only incarnates itself in a dogmatic creed, but also in pastoral practices, sacramental disciplines, ministerial offices, 
and church structures. In this way, his approach to development appears, at least at first sight, to better encompass the controversial issues in which questions of continuity and rupture arise today. Nevertheless, tight and rigorous theological argumentation remains important today, I think, not because the, the conclusion might become a dogma, but because the conclusion is most likely under attack. Putting truths into logical form helps crystallize the higher principles at stake in any particular doctrine. Deny the doctrine and you deny something more basic, more fundamental on which it depends. While it might not be prudent to syllogize, syllogize our way through controversy, we have to be able to show what higher truths are at stake. Newman and the Thomists together remind us that in the heat of controversy, prudencia is just as important as ciencia. Thank you. So I think Father Ray will speak to the microphone. He kind of So, Andrew, I, I just want to mention something about Cardinal Bernay. It, it's been some time since I looked at his treatise on the cascading knowledge of Christ the Apostles of the Church, but I, I, as I understand him, um, our Lord has, I think he calls the point of Christ's fictiveness, our Lord has habitual prophetic knowledge. So, he is able to respond in through the medium of his acquired knowledge. In his own time and place as a first century Jew and second people of Judaism culture, using language and principles of the time, he's able to articulate prophetic understanding of his own life, of the Old Testament and his definitive interpretation, of founding the church, the significance of the saving death, and so forth, in a habitual way, when necessary. The apostles don't have habitual prophetic knowledge, but through the course of the illuminations of the public ministry, through the death of Bastion, especially Aquinas at Pentecost. They receive the fullness of the understanding of the mystery of Christ. And they're given uh, something like infused spezies, I mean infused knowledge that is not rational, uh, didactic, or conceptual, but some higher intuition or understanding of the mystery of Christ, which then they can attempt to, which we actualize in them through the course of their apostolic ministry as they preach Christ, teach him orally and in written form through themselves and the disciples to proclaim what is, they're moved by the Holy Spirit to proclaim for our saving, uh, for our salvation. So, it does not seem to me Shornay thinks that we, they need to know everything in explicit conceptual form. But they do provide enough of the knowledge of the principles enunciated implicitly or explicitly, explicitly or implicitly, that the church that comes after, aided by the same spirit, can then begin to draw out the inferences. And I don't think that that view has to go in the Marin's soul direction or in the Newman direction. I think it can go if it's compatible with either. Um, I just say it because I think Journey is actually a very important conversation partner. This is a comment, a extended comment. But I think Journey is an important conversation partner with the two others that you look at here. Yeah. So, and it could work quite, quite well with your arms. Right, thanks. Uh, can I just comment? I, I, I think that's accurate. He's not, he doesn't say explicitly that, he doesn't make as strong a claim as Maringso. Maringso is very clear that uh, the apostles had an explicit knowledge of the totality of the faith. He's quite clear about that. Whereas Rene says, Thus, on the one hand, that which was contained in the original deposit explicitly is ever kept in mind by the living authority of the church, while, on the other hand, that which was contained in the original deposit implicitly, still in a preconceptual, unformulated way, obscure, yet forceful and unavoidable, is explained and put forward in a conceptual, formulated way by the living authority of the church. And uh, so he, he loves, loves room, but he has a very strong doctrine of, yeah, some kind of infusion, a, few, a gift. Uh, at Pentecost for the apostles, which I think is necessary, yeah. but um, but it, it doesn't necessitate uh, explicit conceptual knowledge of everything. Thank you for an excellent talk. Um, being modestly egotistical, I have to say that I'm an Old Testament, and in my field, there is practically an explicit denial of 
the intellectual, metaphysical, and historical space between the scriptures themselves and the great creeds. So I, I found your talk fascinating on Marian doctrine, but even we have to pose the question of, of, of the doctrinal developments between all the way up to the Chalcedon. And so, um, and the simple denial isn't good enough. And one has to say, um, in what ways is something implicit so that it can become explicit? Um, the idea I've been pushing around in my mind is cosmological puzzles that are inherent in formulations of the New Testament. Uh, but that's only one way of looking at it. Um, how would you approach the question of how one might approach that to show that there is an inherent coherence and convergence of historical studies of the scriptures and an historical, theological, even metaphysical understanding of the priest. Thanks for the easy question. <laughs> uh, I just hazard the beginning of an answer by um, maybe just pointing to the variety of ways in which someone like Newman says that things come about. So I think the only way we can build analogies as to how this complex thing arises. And uh, one analogy is just this, uh, great ideas. How do great ideas develop? And when you think of any great idea, Judaism, democracy, whatever, and you, you throw it among the masses and then something happens and people start tossing it around. And so when it comes to the Christian idea, uh, scripture is one, one privileged normative witness of that Christian idea, that supernatural fact that happens. Uh, but then this, this Christian idea is impressed upon people and there's a reaction. And it, ha it, it, it expresses itself in a creed, in a code, in a conduct, in offices. Uh, it, it smashes up against uh, questions, uh, problems, so you have people thinking about it, asking questions about it, you have worship, I mean in terms of say our Christological dogmas are hammered out in large part on, with a combination of, uh, I mean we, we like to distinguish conceptually between say uh, the dialectical way and the connatural way and you know heresy on the one hand and historical pressures on the other, but in reality all of these things are happening at the same time. So you're confronted with scriptural data, you're confronted with uh, experience, witnesses around you, uh, worship, uh, and all of these things are combining and interacting with one another, uh, which forces or expresses itself in various conclusions. Um, so I'm just maybe trying to take it into account all the complexity of all the ingredients that go into the formulation of, say, Nicaea at the end. I know that's not, that doesn't answer your question adequately. But. Um, uh, to carpetize it a bit more, a big, a big question in, in Pauline studies right now is about the um, corporeality or incorporeality of, of the sphere. Uh, many scholars want to say that, that uh, with the Stoics in the medical text, the Holy Spirit material. Others want to say that, no, it would like to think the spirits uh, incorporeal. The problem is, is in both, both of those cases, it doesn't get to the Christian insight that the Holy Spirit is supernatural because it is the creator. And therefore, doesn't fit in the same categories of being as Neoma in any other sense. Um, so there's a, there's, there's a doctrinal development that I think it is implicit in text. But it goes beyond the contemporary philosophical debates or other kinds of questions that are going on at the time. And so that if we just look at it in terms of uh, ideas on offer in the first century, we're going to get lost in love. That's a fair point. Yeah. And I have a follow-up question. I'm supposed to allude to his own comment question. More to do with perhaps theological development and theological pluralism and legitimate pluralism and unity of faith. It seems to me creating human that his notion of development ultimately is the idea that there can really be only one true authentic development. He experiences become unity. And he originally thought that anti-humanism was a possible development of early Christianity, along with the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, the notion of 
that uh, it develops in time as a uniform development. And in our own days, we uh, are far more open, even the International Theological Commission is far more open to the idea of homogeneity, plurality, or pluralism within theology. And uh, as we look as well, the greater understanding of the richness of the different liturgical traditions in the church above and beyond just the Latin tradition, but the Serum of our and many other Eastern Rite churches. So this is, for me, a sense of a problem dealing with Newman or how to apply Newman to today. Can we say, can we argue for Newman that there is legitimate theological pluralism or there also legitimate pluralism of expressions of doctrine in the life of the church? And so the question is how to come apart from the Right. Okay. Uh, I will answer part of the question. I'll deflect on uh, legitimate theological pluralism to people who know could speak to it better than I could about schools of thought where there's a legitimate. Um, legitimate differences, and they, but they cohere in terms of the, the positive faith. Uh, I think Newman would have been fine with uh, theological pluralism. The pluralism, if you want to call it, between, say, the Anglican Communion and the Greek Church and the Roman Church, as he saw it in the branch theory, th the issue there was not uh, a corrupted faith, as it were. There were partial truths. I mean, there, so the Athanasian Creed that he held so dear as an Anglican is Catholic truth. Uh, what was illegitimate is, or the reason why he ultimately left is because the Anglican Church could not speak authoritatively hic et nunc now. And so the only, uh, there, was, there could only be one organ of, of truth and that he found to be in the Catholic Church. Uh, so there would be, I would make a distinction between uh, the organ of, of infallibility, which has to be one, and uh, the, the multiple bodies which may or may not or uh, adhere more or less to the fullness of, of Catholic truth, which would be in the case of Anglicanism or even, even Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, in terms of the theological diversity, <clears throat> it's even on the dogmatic level. Uh, I think the Greek understanding of the Trinity, the conceptualization of the Trinity in Greek theology is, is different from the Latin, from the Western. Um, that's okay. They're, there are expressions of something uh, that we lay hold of somehow, uh, but they're, in a sense, two parallel systems. That's my understanding of it, that you can't really try to synthesize them, but they, they start with two different understandings of substance and principle uh, and procession. Uh, but in themselves, they're both coherent. Yeah? So you have a, even a legitimate theological plurality, even on the level of, of defined dogma. Uh, Newman talks, it uses this expression quite a lot, the idea of Christianity, you know, the idea of Christianity and its process and people's And you know, we can talk we also talk about ideas and other things. I mean, communism, etc. What exactly does it mean by an idea? I mean, is it um, is it once we receive some at least from a Thomistic how would, you, how would you define what he means by idea? Uh, idea in Christian's view, is it already accepted on faith? Is it just a notional um, uh, reality? Uh, what does he mean by that? I can't, I can't give it to you in Thomistic terms. I could give it to you in his own empiricist grammar. He uses both, uh, there's two, two discourses. One is Platonic and one is empiricist. The empiricist is this, the notion that an idea, a reality, impresses something upon us. And, and reality, when it impresses something, like when Christ impresses the idea of himself on us, it, that's what he calls the Christian idea. And then it's already in our heads. Yeah. Um, then the Platonic dimension, so the, the empirical is epistemological. How does this idea come from uh, reality to us? Uh, the Platonic is this idea that there's a, an idea, and it he uses the words, this very vertical language. He says, it falls upon the masses. It comes down. And therein begins the historical 
wrestling with what is contained in this idea. Uh, whereas it's, it's, it's pure and perfect and, and everything uh, above, but here below, when we're wrestling, when the idea is here, uh, falls upon the masses, then we have to grapple with it. Um, so is the idea of Christianity, is that somehow, is that similar to the idea of communism? Or the idea of anything else? Yeah, he, something? He, I mean, is there, no, yeah. an aspect of grace? Is there an aspect of he, he uses, faith perception? Yeah, he uses an analogy, and with every metaphor, it's a metaphor, uh, and there's a difference and a similarity. So it is similar to other ideas in history. So the whole argument of the essay is to say, look at all these other ideas in history. They develop, and it raises your expectation that the Christian idea would also develop. Uh, on the one hand, that's a similar similarity, but there's also a distinction. The Christian idea is unique. It's supernatural, has a supernatural cause. Its unfolding is aided with divine assistance, etc. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's unique, and so there's differences and similarities. Thank you very much, Professor Jones. We meet again in 30 minutes. We will to Professor Bernard Kruger, and you can refresh.